You stand and turn your Bibles to the book of John. As Pastor Bruce continues in his series, Faith, Finances, and a Fresh Start. We're going to be reading John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Today's message title is Economics 101 with Jesus. If you've uh, ever taken an econ class, I assure you this will be better than the one you took in college. So we read John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 to learn about economics from Jesus. The story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here that has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Father, we ask this morning that... Our heart uh, would be your heart and that our finances and faith would be the finances and faith that you would have us uh, to have. Just uh, help us to learn and apply uh, the message about, uh, about our possessions, belongings, and our finances so that they are in line with what you would have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, thank you, Zach, for leading us in our scripture reading. Well, did you guys hear about the uh, mother who was hysterical because her uh, little Jimmy had swallowed a quarter. Hear about this story? It was in the USA Today. No, just kidding about that. Uh, But she turned to her husband and screamed for him to call a doctor. And so he picked up the phone, but instead of calling the doctor, he telephoned his pastor. Well, the wife was rather upset about this and said, We don't need the pastor. We need some medical help here. To which the husband replied, Hey, Our pastor can get money out of anyone. (laughs) Now, uh, you can breathe a big sigh of relief. Everybody take a big breath. It's like, (sighs) I promise you, my goal, although we're talking about stewardship during the month of January, talking about money and giving, I promise you my goal here is not to squeeze money out of you. That's not the goal of this series. My goal during this series Uh, is to find out and discover what God says about stewardship in His Word. We want to get His perspective. We already know what the world's perspective is, our our culture's perspective about money and things that money can buy and stewardship in general. Our goal in this series is to find out what God has to say. Now, speaking of a fresh start, since that's what we're calling this series, Faith, Finances, and a Fresh Start, According to ehow.com contributor Gwenevie Van Wyden, she says financial problems continue to top Americans' list of concerns. Uh, 
The Pew Foundation did a recent survey, and their survey reveals that 70% of Americans have faced one or more financial-related problems in the past year, up from 59% the year before. According to Credit.com, while the economy is slowly improving, many Americans across the country are still struggling with money problems. Uh, the, this this uh, article went on to say over half of Americans still live paycheck to paycheck. 60% said they do not have enough money saved up in case of a financial emergency, according to this new poll. One website asked the question this way, what causes financial problems for American families? Well, here's how this website identifies the problem, and I quote, in an economy marked by unemployment, skyrocketing health insurance costs, and a deflated real estate market, you might be surprised at what causes financial problems for American families. While these economic factors can greatly contribute to financial strain, the primary cause for Americans' financial troubles is a wrong attitude about money. I read that and I was like, wow, is, am, I, is this, you know, am I reading this correctly? Very often they say financial trouble, that is having expenses that exceed our income, comes down to a problem with our attitude about money and the things we want to purchase. Now, I, I state all this for the simple reason that there's no doubt many of us, and at least maybe perhaps not you, maybe perhaps you here this morning, and at least across our country, many people are experiencing financial problems. So here's a question to think about. And perhaps this question applies to you, maybe it doesn't, but do you need a fresh start in your finances? A fresh start. After all, the name of the series is Faith, Finances, and a Fresh Start. So perhaps you're here this morning and you need a fresh start in your finances. Well, notice your notes here. If demand exceeds supply, and your cry is not enough at the end of the week or at the end of the month, then I want to encourage you to take notice of the economic plan of Jesus Christ. Now, believe it or not, Jesus taught about an economic plan while living here on this earth. But it's an economic plan that you won't hear taught in most classrooms. Zach was right on when he said that at the beginning of the scripture reading. In fact, I remember while attending University of Missouri, Kansas City, right downtown here, that uh, one of the cl classes I took was economics class. And, uh, you know, and that was quite a while back, so I have to admit, I don't remember a whole lot that I learned in that class. But one thing I will never forget of what I learned is that there is a law of economics. It's called the law of supply and demand. And the law of supply and demand, how many have heard of it? Most of you have. And for most of us, we even understand it. It's a simple law that says when demand exceeds supply, what happens? Prices rise. The reverse side is when supply exceeds demand, then prices do what? They decline, they go down, and we all like that, right? A great example of this law right now going on in our country, even in our city today, is the housing market. All you got to do is look at the housing market. For example, the value of your house is less today, believe it or not, yes, than it was three, five years ago when you paid for it or bought it, or even if you bought it 20 years ago or however long it was. Why? Because the supply of houses for sale 
exceeds the demand for houses that people want to buy. In fact, many people today are upside down in their homes. And we all understand what that means. It's not a good place to be. Uh, so what does all this economic stuff have to do with Jesus feeding thousands of people in John chapter 6? I mean, what do the two have to do with one another? Well, that experience in John chapter 6 was all about the law of supply and demand. Except this economic law was not limited by the economics of mankind, but rather it was unleashed by the economics of Jesus Christ. Now, on that afternoon, Jesus laid out his economic plan for his people on a green, grassy hillside in Galilee. And this morning, what I want us to do, I, I kind of want to take us back there if we can. Uh, I want to invite you to kind of sit on the hillside with the multitudes that were there that day and to sit in on a supernatural demonstration of economics with the teacher being none other than Jesus Christ. So are you ready to take a journey with me this morning? A journey back to Galilee. So picture yourself on this Galilean hillside. You're there with thousands of people. You're there with the multitudes. And Jesus is going to teach us about his economic principles, his economic plans, if you will. We can even call it kingdomnomics, you know, whatever that means. I like how J. Hudson Taylor put it. J. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, said it this way. When God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will never lack God's supply. Basically, that's what we're going to learn from Jesus Christ. We're going to see that without Christ, listen, demand exceeds supply. But with Christ, supply always exceeds demand. So those are the two basic principles that we're going to see from Jesus. Let's review it and look at it here this morning. Number one, without Christ. Without Christ, demand exceeds supply, and the cry is not enough. We discover in John 6 that a need had developed on the hillside in Galilee. The demand of the people was great. We read in verse 2 that thousands of people followed Jesus and his disciples to the mountainside. Why? Well, they, they saw the miracles Jesus had performed on the sick, and hey, they were curious. Who is this guy? What's he all about? I mean, after all, if you had seen the miracles Jesus had done, you perhaps would have been very curious as well. You perhaps would have followed him and wanted to get uh, your curiosity uh, satisfied to find out who is this guy all about. The problem was the multitude of people were now far from home. It was getting rather late in the day, and there was no food. To put it in economic terms, there was no supply of food to meet the demand of their physical hunger. And spiritually, that is always the way it is without Jesus Christ in our lives. And the cry that we have when we are without Christ is what? Not enough. Not enough. We're always hungry. We're always seeking. There's always this void in our life of not enough. And perhaps some of you are sitting, if you will, on that same hill this morning in your own life. That is, you are in need because right now, your life, demand is exceeding supply. And your cry spiritually is not enough. Listen, whether your need's financial, 
whether it's relational, whether it's uh, something else. Understand, if you try to fill the need and the void in your life without Christ, there is never enough, and demand always exceeds supply. Now, let's go back to the mountainside with the multitude. What was the need of the multitude that afternoon on the Galilean hillside? Well, it's rather simple. Most of you are familiar with the feeding of the 5,000. You can look at it in your notes here. The need of the multitude was to minister to the needs of over 5,000 people by feeding them. The multitude of people had this apparent problem of no food, and they were hungry. It was late in the evening, and there was no place to buy food. They hadn't brought any food. Their demand exceeded their supply, and their cry was not enough. That's the way it always is when you don't factor Jesus into your economic plans. Now, let me bring this to an application for our church here, here in 2011. What is the need of our church? We'll notice this in your notes. The need of our church is to minister to the needs of people by funding our mission and ministries. By funding our mission of leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Here's one way to think about this. Think of it this way. Good ministry costs good money. Good ministry costs good money. Listen, accomplishing our mission of making disciples costs money. Accomplishing our mission of reaching unbelievers with the gospel of Jesus Christ and then building those believers to live as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ costs money. For example, ministering to people costs money. Leading kids to know Christ costs money. Helping adults grow in Christ costs money. Having the Awana ministry, Trek ministry costs money. Picking up kids on the van costs money. Taking teens to summer camp costs money. Putting on a VBS costs money. Coming together for a worship service as a church family like we are this morning, yes, it costs money. Having joy fellowship, having a praise team, having a nursery, small groups, a website. All these ministries cost money. Reaching out and serving our community costs money. Supporting missionaries and taking the gospel around the world, what? Costs money. Understand, in other words, what I'm saying is everything we do to minister to people costs money. And God's been very good to us. There's no doubt about it. For the most part, all of our ministries are doing fairly well. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean uh, that we can do better. We can always do better. In fact, there are places where we need to improve dramatically in what we're trying to accomplish. But I know this. I do praise God, and I hope you praise God with me for the 13 salvations that we had last year. Amen? 13 people received Christ, or at least professed Christ as their Lord and Savior, And out of those 13 salvations last year, three of them were adults, three of them were teens, and seven of them were children. We praise God and give praise to him for 20 people who were baptized last year. 20 people baptized, five adults, five teens, ten adults. And we certainly praise God that four adults came into the membership of our church family. Uh, In fact, all four are here this morning, Ken and Charlotte Minor, and Jackie and Cheryl sitting right there in the back as well. And we praise God that they're a part of our church family now, right? I mean, this is something to praise God for, right? Pretty amen. 
Absolutely. But you know what? It doesn't come cheap. It all costs money. And if we want to continue to provide good ministry, it will continue to cost, well, good money. On January 30th, uh, a couple of Sundays from today, we will present the new budgets, which have been rescheduled from last Sunday. And uh, the 2011 general budget, as of now, is a little over $296,000. That's the new budget for this year that we've set. Uh, the finance team has recommended that to the Leadership Council. The Leadership Council has, has already approved that this last December. Our total giving last year in 2010 was a little over $290,000. So quickly you can see the math. There's a gap of about what? $6,000. If you take our income, our giving of last year of $290,000, and our budget, which is around $296,000, that leaves us a gap of $6,000. What does all this mean? It simply means that the demand of our mission and ministries exceeds the supply of our finances by around six grand. And our cry is not enough. But that's only when we fail to factor Jesus into the equation. That's only if we forget what Jesus can do. That's only if we don't remember what he's done in the past and what he can do again for us this year. The temptation is to look at our church's financial need through the economic eyes of a CPA. And not that CPAs are bad. We need CPAs. And when we do that, though, and look at our financial need only through their eyes, listen, the law of supply and demand seems like a problem that can't be overcome. And human logic says our budget needs to come below what our giving was last year. But that's only if we don't factor Jesus into the equation. Let me give you three things that can cause the problem of demand exceeding supply. First of all, if we have no sense of planning in our lives. If we have no sense of planning. This was exactly the case in John chapter 6 with the multitudes following Jesus. There were over 5,000 men, women, and children who had no sense of proper planning that day. Now, one thing was good. They were following Jesus. They, they were curious. They wanted to hear him teach. They wanted to find out more about him, which is all positive. The only thing is, they didn't think when they started out that day, hey, I better take some food with me or some money to buy some, except they were at a place where there wasn't any place to buy food. The people didn't think ahead and plan appropriately for their need. And consequently, they now had a demand which there was no apparent supply. And fortunately, the problem turned out to be just another opportunity for Jesus Christ to do a miracle. Do you realize that all miracles begin at the platform of our problems in life? Got problems? Oh, man, you got an opportunity for Jesus to do something awesome in your life. Right? We all have problems, some big, some large, some on a grander scale than others. And problems are just a platform for God to do something special. It was no different on that hillside in Galilee. And it's no different in our personal lives, and it's no different in our church today. The heart cry of so many people today is not enough. Not enough when they plan without Christ in their lives. 
So the simple question is, how are you planning? Are you planning your life with Christ as a part of it, as the center of it, as the focus of it, or are you simply living life along without Christ anywhere near it? Remember, problems can become opportunities for Jesus to do miracles. A second thing that can cause the problem of demand exceeding supply is if we have no sense of purpose in our stewardship. We learned last Sunday in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, that stewardship is simply uh, the idea that we are managers of what God has entrusted to us for God's glory, first and foremost, for other people's good, and even for our joy. That's the purpose of our stewardship. And listen, there can be, this is, can be a cause of the problem of demand exceeding supply when we have no sense of purpose in our stewardship. And the disciples, Philip and Andrew, illustrate this fact best. Notice again what it says in John chapter 6, this time in verses 5 through 6. Look at it with me again. So then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now Jesus is giving us a little insight here. He's telling us that he was, quote, testing Philip when he asked him where they should buy bread to eat. Well, what exactly was Jesus testing? Well, Jesus was testing Philip's faith. He was testing his trust in Jesus. It's interesting to note that Jesus already knew what he was going to do in response to the need of feeding the multitude. I would suggest that we can be confident that Jesus knows what he's going to do with our needs as well. Jesus was testing his disciples that day. And I believe in many ways Jesus is testing us. He's testing you personally. He's testing me. He's testing our church as a church family. And I think Jesus wants to see just how much we really trust God with our finances. I think he wants to see and test how much we really believe God will meet our financial needs as a church through our giving. Notice Philip's response to Christ's question in verse 7. In verse 7 it says, Philip answered him, that is he answered Jesus and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Now, can you just imagine Philip here? This guy's the classic CPA. He's got a cash register for a mind. I mean, it is just, he's... You talk about a calculator going off in his mind. He's adding it all up and figuring it up as Jesus is speaking and he's observing the situation. The first thing he thought when it came to the problem was not what Jesus could do, but how much it was going to cost to try to feed 5,000 people. Now, this is rather sad on Philip's part. He said, well, why was it so sad? Because Philip was one of Jesus' followers. Philip's been following Jesus for for some time now. And he has personally witnessed Jesus perform numerous miracles. Philip, along with the other disciples here this day, listen, they have seen Jesus perform all kinds of miracles, such as the time when Jesus turned the water into wine. They've seen Jesus heal the sick. They've seen Jesus 
uh, make the lame walk, and yet, how does Philip respond to this apparent problem? He responds with no sense of purpose of what Jesus could do in this situation. Instead, he looked at what could be done only from a human perspective. Man, we could give Philip a big, well, let's be honest, it's school, school's in session. We could give Philip an F here because he flunked Jesus' test that afternoon. You say, well, what about Andrew? He was there as well. Well, let's look at Andrew. This brings us to the third thing that can cause the problem of demand exceeding supply, and that is if we have no sense of potential through Jesus Christ. If we have no sense of potential. Notice in verse 9 what Andrew says to Jesus. Look at it with me. Verse 9, Andrew says, hey, Jesus, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. Man, we ought to give it up for Andrew right here because he's doing great so far. But unfortunately, notice how he continues in verse 9. But what are they among so many? Can't help but think that's sometimes my, my attitude. But what is that? among so many. What difference is that going to make? What a defeatist attitude. Like Philip, Andrew crashes and burns on this test from Jesus. On that Galilean hillside, both Philip and Andrew became part of the problem instead of the solution because they had no sense of purpose and no sense of potential through what Jesus Christ could do. Jesus was testing them. Jesus was hoping I, I think if we could read between the lines here, I think Jesus just wanted to hear them say something like this, Lord, no food? How? No problem. Not with you here anyway. I mean, we've seen you turn water into wine. We've seen you heal the sick. Surely you can handle a little food shortage. Surely you can do that, Jesus. But instead, neither Philip or Andrew factored Jesus into this economic situation And without Christ, demand always exceeds supply. And the cry is what? Not enough. You see, the crowd was crying not enough. But the sad part is the disciples here, Philip and Andrew, are making the same cry. Not enough. And they're the followers of Christ. I wonder how many of us identify with Philip and Andrew here. I wonder how many of us are looking for human possibilities to solve our problems and even solve our church's financial needs. This is often the result. When we look at our problems, when we look at our needs with no sense of purpose and no sense of potential through Jesus Christ. Think about it with me. Just think about this for a moment. A little boy, a lad, it says, comes on the scene who has a sack lunch with what? Five loaves of bread and two small fish. This little boy, can you just picture it? Man, he left home that morning. His little sack lunch, they didn't have lunch pills back then. His little brown paper bag, perhaps, who knows what it was. A little sack lunch, and he left home that morning with enough food to feed thousands. And yet all Philip and Andrew could see is enough food to feed one little boy. 
Why? Because they failed to factor Jesus into their apparent problem. Oh, how many of us respond like Philip and Andrew when facing a need or problem in life. It's so easy to respond like these two disciples when it comes to to funding our church's mission and even our ministries here. Instead of thinking what God can do, we think the need is impossible to meet. And so we better scale back. We better do this. And listen, I'm not saying there's not times when you, when, when you got to look at both the, uh, the, what Jesus can do, but also, if I can say the word, the pragmatic side of your finances and budget too. And there are times when you have to make budget cuts. And as a finance team, I assure you, they have made budget cuts this year. And we're, our church is no different than, than even your economic situation or other churches across our nation in the sense who are feeling the pinch of our economy. But listen, God forbid that we only look at our finances from a pragmatic point of view and without understanding that God is over all this and Jesus can do whatever he wants and we're trusting Jesus through our faithfulness to meet the needs that we believe God is leading us when it comes to funding our mission and ministries as a church body. In many ways, I really do believe God is testing our church just like Jesus tested Philip and Andrew on the hillside in Galilee. And the question we as individuals and as a church body must ask ourselves, will we factor Jesus into the economic equation? Will we remember that God has provided in the past and that God can provide again in the future? Let me just give you one example of how God's provided in the past for our church. Some of you were here in 2003. This my first full year as the pastor. It was the first year that we had a full-fledged budget that were presented to you as a church congregation. And that budget that we presented to you was a budget that was $37,000 over what the income was the year before in 2002. In other words, the gap was huge. You're talking about a $37,000 gap in the budget from 2002 to 2003. Ask me where we ended the year in 2003. How many of you remember what God did? God met the need. And we ended the year in the black that year. We made up in the sense, and when I say we, God made up the difference through our faithfulness, through our trust in him, and through us honoring God with our finances. God provided. And if God can do that with a $37,000, surely God can make up $6,000, right? When we do our part, when we honor him and we come together as a church family, listen, I honestly believe with all my heart, that, and I believe this is true for every church, not just ours, that there's always enough money in every church body to meet the needs of the ministry and mission. There's always enough money within a church congregation to meet the needs of funding their mission and ministries. It's never an issue of money. It's always an issue of do we as a church family and we as individuals 
Do we trust God enough with our finances to honor him in our giving? It always comes down to that. Statistics even tell us that it's like 30, I think the national average across America now, 30% of people in churches give 80% of the funds. 30% give 80% of the church budgets. Yeah, start doing CPA, start doing the math on that one. Again, all I'm saying is there's always enough money within every church to accomplish the mission and ministries that God leads them to do. Now, remember, God has a way of supplying all our needs when we figure Jesus into the economic equation. It's the eternal law of supply and demand, which brings us to the second part of Christ's economic plan. Number two, with Christ, with Christ, supply exceeds demand, and the cry is more than enough. You've heard the story, but notice it again, what Jesus does in John chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Look how the story continues. Verse 10 says, Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number of about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Now, one of the dangers of the story is we're so familiar with it, we've lost our awe of it. But this is an amazing miracle that Jesus performs. Just think about it. It's so simple and yet so amazing. Jesus, he takes the bread and the fish, he gives thanks to his father, And then he multiplied it so over 5,000 men, women, and children could eat. And after everyone ate, there were still 12 baskets of food left over. And the cry of the multitude and of the disciples and of the little boy was what? More than enough! Kind of reminds me, um, at least once a year, probably twice a year, we take the senior adults uh, our joy fellowship, and we go to Hometown Buffet. You guys all know what Hometown Buffet is? What is Hometown Buffet? It's a buffet, well, a buffet, right? And what do you do at buffets? You're glad, that's right, Tarny. And you, you go back over and over again, and you eat as much as you want to where you have to push your chair back and kind of loosen the belt a little bit, and you say, oh, I've had more than enough. Now, I know for some of us, we'd rather do that at Arthur Bryant's or Smoking Guns with barbecue or your favorite Mexican restaurant. And we've all experienced that, where we have pushed our chair back. For example, we just finished with the holidays, Christmas Day, and we've had more than enough. We can't eat anymore. Listen, that's what the multitudes were saying. After Jesus does this amazing miracle, 12 baskets of food, Left over. Amazing. Now the question we all want to know is, how did this miracle happen? How did supply exceed demand of feeding the multitude? Well, notice this. It began when a little boy was willing to give his lunch to Jesus. This little boy could have clutched his brown paper bag in his hands. 
but he willingly gave his lunch to the Lord Jesus. Jesus looked at the prospects of that lunch and saw that it wasn't very much. Just five loaves of bread and two small fish. But Jesus also saw the potential with the little boy's lunch now that it was placed in his hands. Listen, it's not the size of your lunch that matters, but whether we are willing to give our lunch into the hands of Jesus. This story teaches us a great principle. Little is much when God is in it and Jesus possesses it. This little boy gave his whole lunch to Jesus. He could have given just one loaf of bread and one fish and kept the rest for himself, but he gave all of his lunch. And that exchange between the lad and our Lord, let me tell you, it tapped the resources of heaven and the power of Jesus Christ. And then he stayed around and saw one of the greatest miracles that our Lord ever performed. Now, the question then is this for us today. How will supply exceed demand of funding our church's mission and ministries? Listen, it begins when I am willing to give my finances to God. Do you remember what we learned last Sunday about stewardship from Proverbs 3, 9 and 10? We learned that the priority of our stewardship is to honor God with what was called the first fruits, which means the first portion of our income. And when we honor God in our giving, that is, we give him the first fruits of our income, the first portion of our income. Listen, God promises to bless us abundantly. And one of the most amazing parts of this story in John 6 is that after everything was eaten, there was more left over than there was to begin with. Understand, listen, we will never give anything to the Lord and lose it. He gives it back to us again and again and again. Just just take note of God's economy here. It starts with the boy. The boy gave to Jesus. And then the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples. And then the disciples gave to the crowd. And the more they gave, the more there was to give. And the crowd even had the opportunity to give back with 12 baskets left over. The Bible says they were filled in verse 12. The need was met, praise the Lord. The same people who cried earlier, not enough, are now crying more than enough. Yes, with Christ, supply exceeds demand and the cry is more than enough. Then Jesus says, He tells the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain. And there were 12 baskets of food left over. And the boy, oh man, he who gave so little had the privilege of giving again. This is how God's economic plan works. Now, let me summarize all that we've learned from this story in two simple principles. Two powerful economic principles of God. Number one is this. God delights in using our giving to accomplish his purposes, no matter how much or how little. God delights in using our giving. Here's a question to think about. If God can use the little boy's lunch to feed over 5,000 people, don't you think God can use what you give to fund our church's mission and ministries when we place it in his hands? You see, again, the issue is never how much or how little your giving is. 
The issue is always right here in the heart. Are you willing to honor God with your giving and finances? I like how someone once put it, it's not what you do with the million dollars if fortune should be your lot, but what you are doing at present with the dollar and quarter you got. Number two, the second economic principle is God not only delights in using our giving to accomplish his purposes, but he delights in making up the difference in our apparent problems of demand exceeding supply. Did you notice that the little boy's lunch didn't do any good until when? Until he put it in the hands of Jesus. And when it was, what a difference it made. In fact, the word distributed that John uses in verse 11 is in the imperfect tense. And all that means is that Jesus kept distributing He kept distributing. He kept giving more and more and more and multiplying it over and over and over until there was more than enough. The point is this. Jesus took a seemingly insignificant little lunch and used it to make up the difference in feeding the multitudes. And folks, listen, God delights in doing the same thing with your giving. But God's economic plan always comes down to one key question. It always does. Look at it there in your notes. The key question, it always boils down to this. Are you willing to trust God with your finances? Just as this little boy put his lunch in the hands of Jesus, are you willing to put your finances in the hands of God? Do you think this little boy regretted giving his sack lunch to Jesus? How many say, no way? Oh, thank you for raising your hand, yeah. Let me ask that again. Do you think this little boy regretted giving his lunch to Jesus? No way! Man, he saw one of the greatest miracles ever performed. And I promise you, God promises you that you will never regret it when you trust him with your finances. Now, for those of you who are willing to take your finances and put it in the hands of Jesus Christ, I want to leave you with three steps to take. Three steps to take for those who are willing to take the trust test. Number one, step one, is to give a portion of your income to God. Is to give a portion of your income to God first. Some of you may be sitting there thinking, oh, Bruce, I I, I can't do that. I I don't have very much to give. I can't do much. I don't make a whole lot of money. I don't have a whole lot of money. What can I give? I'm just like this little boy with the little sack lunch. It's not enough to make a difference. Remember, Jesus isn't looking for how much you can give or how little. That's not the issue. He's not looking for your ability of what you can do. He's looking for your availability to simply trust God if I can say it this way, with your lunch. So give what you can. Give a portion. The Bible says and talks about giving a percentage or proportionately. And listen, I honestly believe our church is full of people with potential to meet our financial needs. All we need for a miracle is a lad, a lunch, and the Lord because little is much when God is in it. Number two, Step number two is ask God to use your giving to make up the difference. 
Again, I challenge us. I challenge myself with this. If God can use a sack lunch to make up the difference in feeding over 5,000 people, then certainly God can use our giving as a church to make up the difference in funding our budget. So as you give, whether you give weekly, monthly, whatever the case may be, when you give, ask God. Lift up a simple prayer and ask God, God, I'm trusting you with my gift here. In my giving, I recognize that you're the giver of it. You are the source of it. And I'm asking you to take this gift and multiply it to meet the needs of Glenwood Baptist Church. Because you're more than powerful and capable to do that. And then step number three is expect God to do a miracle. Expect God to do a miracle in your life in our church. Do you realize, Philip and Andrew, they almost missed out. Philip and Andrew, two disciples of Jesus Christ, and they almost missed out on the miracle that afternoon in Galilee. Why? Because they never expected Jesus to perform one. They had no sense of purpose in what they could give, and they had no sense of potential in what Christ could do. Instead, all it took was the expectation of a little boy with a sack lunch who was willing to offer it to Jesus. And they all had the privilege of witnessing one of the greatest miracles ever performed by Jesus. Let me ask you, what are you expecting this year? What are you expecting in your own life? Because here's here's the temptation of all of us. We read the papers. We watch the news. And isn't it easy, when you watch the economic news of our country, the job, unemployment rate still at 10%. And it's funny, we were just, we met in my office to pray, as we do every Sunday morning. There was a group of us men who met this morning. And the subject would, just naturally went to this topic. And it began to drift to a doomsday topic, almost. How our country's falling apart, we're in debt, uh, our economy's going to fall again, or whatever the case may be, and, and, and whatnot. And isn't it easy, when we, when we start talking that way, and we start watching the news and reading the paper, whatever the case may be, and we immediately think so negative. And our expectation is what? Not a lot. Because we don't factor Jesus into it. But folks, listen. When Christ is the center, and when you understand what Christ is doing and what he's about. Yeah, I'm not happy about what's going on in our country. But you know what? There is still a calm and a peace. That regardless of what happens in our country, God still reigns supreme. And he's over all that's going on. And he may allow us to experience what none of us wish we want to experience, especially for our kids. But that doesn't mean Christ is not reigning on high. And so I simply ask you, what are you expecting this year in your own life and in our church when it comes to just finances in general?
Listen, if this story teaches us anything, it teaches us God's economic plan for his people. And without Christ, demand always exceeds supply, and the cry is not enough. But with Christ, supply equals or exceeds demand, and the cry is more than enough. More than enough. But it always comes down to that one simple question. Do I trust God? Will I trust him enough to offer my lunch, my finances, and put it into his hands? And to honor him with what he asked me to honor him with? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. And we thank you for this story in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, a miraculous story. And Lord, we thank you that you met the need that day. And that, Lord, you are still meeting needs today. And that you desire to meet the needs of your church. And Lord, you know what our needs are. You know what our needs are for ministry and fulfilling our mission. We understand it takes money. And Lord, even in our economic situation, we understand that you can meet that need no matter what. When your people come together and trust you with their finances. And so, Lord, we, we ask for the grace to do just that. Lord, I know perhaps there are some people here who... It just seems like such a big step of faith for them. Lord, help them to take that step of faith. Help them to trust you in every area of their life, including this one. And Lord, we thank you in advance for what you will do in meeting our church's need in 2011. And these things we pray in your son's name. Amen.